With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome back to the Go Gamecocks podcast presented by the State Newspaper. I am your host, Greg Hadley, and I am joined, as I always am, by my fellow sports reporter, Ben Breiner. Ben, we missed last week. That's my bad. I was out of town. We're Uh, here. We're back. We're back, and we're looking back at a game that I missed a lot of the run-up to because I was out of town, and then you actually had to miss the game because you were attending a wedding. I listened to a lot of it on the radio and watched the first half and then rewatched a bunch of it while you were asleep. So, you know... I know what happened. Well, I think we should at least, you know, send our congratulations to Colin Taylor of Gamecock Central, at least. It was a truly lovely wedding. And you made a pretty nice appearance in the post-game press conference. I mean, we had to marshal as many questioners as we could find. Uh, Wes Mitchell, I think, had already departed for the night, so we made do with the media members on hand. Well, you did miss an exciting game over at williams Bryce Stadium. I saw that. South Carolina football picking up its third-ranked win of the Will Muschamp era. Real tight game against Auburn, number 15 Auburn, coming out on top 30-22. to Let's jump into, I think, obviously, the, the highlight of the game is J.C. Horn coming up with two interceptions. He entered the game with none in his career, really exploded. Obviously, we've known for a while that he's a very good player. He started as a freshman, and he's gone straight through into his junior year. But, I mean, in a lot of ways, it kind of felt like the, the breakthrough coming out game on the national stage that we thought Horn could produce for a while now. It's really strange because the main reason it happened is because Auburn just kept throwing it at him. And I know I had read some stuff that postulated that, you know, based on the style of RPO offense that Auburn runs, that a lot of the time they only have one receiver targeted. But nonetheless, I mean, they threw at J.C. Horn a lot, and he basically just threw a lot of those balls right back or caught them. It was really weird. And I guess that's what you have to have to have a, you know, breakout game as a corner. We remember Israel McQuamu last year, uh, whose three-pick game against Georgia eventually, I think, led to him being second-team All-SEC. But, you know, I mean, J.C. Horn is really good. J.C. Horn showed up and was really good. J.C. Horn, he wasn't the best defender on the team last year because that was Javon Kinlaw. But he's been right there close to the discussion and, you know, you might have been able to make case he was the best defensive player on that team his freshman year. I mean, he just played alongside NFL players, and he is as good as any of them. Well, maybe not Kinlaw, but close to that level, I think. I mean, that guy might be a first-rounder. He's really dang good, and I don't understand at all why Auburn insisted on trying to beat him one-on-one. It was especially baffling from Auburn QB Bo Nix, who uh, has a bit of a reputation as, you know, a risk taker, to put it uh, most generously. But South Carolina was missing Isru Mukwama, who you mentioned from that Georgia game, who is a solid DB in his own right. But they were missing him due to a groin injury. They were down another key defensive back in Cam Smith, who got cleated somehow and needed stitches. So they were really thin at the secondary, which was already a weak position entering the game. And J.C. Horn is so clearly the best option in a very thin group. 
And yet, like you said, they kept on just Bo Nix or the Chad Morris, the offensive coordinator. They made the decision to keep on attacking the very best option, and he made them pay. Yeah, it was unbelievably dominant and interesting because it was dominant in a way that you saw as compared to the way most shutdown corners are dominant, which is you don't see them. They go do their thing on one side of the field and the ball goes to the other side. And, you know, I'm, I think, I think we asked uh, John Dixon in the weekly media availability, if he was a little surprised that they didn't throw it his way more and he kind of smiled a little bit. <laughs> One thing you did mention was the, the similarity to that Georgia game last year when Israel Mukwamu had three interceptions. South Carolina has three interceptions in this one. JC Horn accounts for two forces another. It did feel oddly similar watching it in a couple ways because the defensive performance was so dominant against a quarterback that was making some interesting choices. And I mean, I'll say interesting. It's the nice way to say it, right? Bo Nix was real bad. He was he was not good. And he's a five star and he thought he could do a lot of stuff and he, he didn't do any of it well. And last year, Jake Fromm, you know, has the reputation as, you know, being a game manager, but he made some, he tried to force some throws last year. And this year against Auburn, just like we saw last year, these interceptions set up real quick scoring drives. They score touchdowns off all three of those interceptions. I think all of them inside Auburn territory. And I thought that was interesting because it kind of maybe hid or masked the fact a little bit that South Carolina's offense wasn't particularly dominant. I think they were outgained by Auburn in the game. But when you're dealing with shorts fields like that, I mean, it's almost hard to lose when you are served up that many opportunities. Yeah, I think the I, th- I think there were again kind of like we've seen for a while flashes on offense. There were moments, there were nice plays, but you know, it wasn't it was kind of a I'd almost call it hit and miss. There were there were a number of drives that made you kind of nod your head and there were some some duds in there. Um and this team is still pretty short on playmakers by and large. You know, you're relying on one tight end, one receiver, and two tailbacks for the most part, and then just other guys to fill in the cracks. So yeah, still very much a work in progress, still quite talent poor when it comes to pass catchers. But I think that a lot of this season is going to be about grinding out any and every win they can. And you know what? They, they managed to pull that off in this one. Yeah, interestingly, a game that obviously Auburn was favored to win, being the highly ranked team. But going into it, it kind of seemed like South Carolina was kind of the trendy upset pick for the week. I think all the analysts on ESPN's college game day actually picked South Carolina to win. It definitely had that sense of, you know, a game that was there just because South Carolina had looked as steady as they had early on, or at least, you know, not as mistake prone, whereas Auburn was more shaky. It was super strange kind of on that front, because usually when everyone jumps on the trendy upset pick, that doesn't happen. No one was picking South Carolina beat Georgia last year. I know that. So it was kind of strange to just watch everyone say, oh, of course that's going to happen, and then have it just complete, just ha- just happen. That is That was very odd. We mentioned the injuries to Mukwamu and Cam Smith. One guy who, who made a return after missing the Vanderbilt game for undisclosed reason was defensive tackle K.R. Thomas, and he was pretty effective there in the middle of the defensive line. I mean— We've looked at the snap counts. You've looked at the film. How much of a difference does he make to this defensive line, especially because he's a good player, but also compared to what the Gamecocks have to play when they don't have him? Well, the Gamecocks are just, they're still not getting much consistency out of Zach Pickens or Rick Sandage. And 
that means they're getting a lot of work from Jabari Ellis and a lot of work from Keir Thomas. I was looking at some of the snap data, and Keir played a little less than I had kind of thought in some of the earlier games. But I think he played 70 or 71 snaps in this game, which is just a monstrous number for a defensive tackle, let alone a defensive tackle going up against a hurry-up offense that is predicated on running the ball. But he had, I think, it was eight tackles and two sacks. I know he had one very big play in which Bo Nix had a pretty wide open lane in the middle of the in the middle of the line, and Thomas, you know, shoved off his block and made the tackle for a one yard loss. And I think that Keir Thomas has been making those kind of subtle, you know, you rewatch the game and you say, oh well, well there he is making another play. He's tended to make a lot of those kinds of plays through the years. And I think he's kind of growing more vital to this defense, if for no other reason than he's buying them more and more and more time to maybe get Pickens or Sandage up to speed and and playing kind of at that higher level. And I, I know some people have said that they thought Pickens has played, you know, very much like a starter, but he's not getting started snaps right now, and he's not exactly playing like a top 10 national recruit just yet. Hey there. Like what you hear? Good news. You can help ensure the state continues making journalism you love to read, watch, and listen to. If you're more into sports than news, you'd probably like our Sports Pass membership, which gives you access to unlimited sports coverage for just $30 for the first year. Subscribe to Sports Pass at thestate.com slash sportspass. You can also read more Gamecocks news by downloading the Go Gamecocks app or by signing up for our newsletter at thestate.com slash newsletters. Thanks for supporting local journalism. Now, back to today's episode. Well, to kind of blend uh, our recap of Auburn and our preview of this upcoming weekend's game against LSU, I mean, this is a game that entering the season, I think most people dropped in the probably not a South Carolina win, not quite on the level of a, you know, a miracle required kind of game. But that being said, to be 2-2 two and two at this point in the season especially after you drop that opener to Tennessee, I, I think that's maybe not a sign of progress, but that is a, a sign of things are not falling apart here. There is still a chance to make this a a viable season, I, I would posit. I think that's true. I mean, I, I guess I also don't totally know what a viable season is in this kind of campaign. I mean, if they go four and six, based on how things look to the start, I mean, that's probably good, I think. Some people might view it as a disappointment because, you know, Tennessee might go down in a ball of flames. So I think a lot of it's just going to be when you get to the end of the year, what's the context? What does the quality of the schedule look like? I still think if this team wins three games, it's probably fine. If it wins more than three games, that's mostly a success. And, you know, they're halfway there right now. I have no idea what Missouri is going to be like when they come into town. So then it just comes down to some weird road games and starting with this one because LSU might be good and LSU might not be as good as people thought. Yeah, I mean, LSU, defending national champs, all that historic greatness last year, they've been hit hard, obviously, by a lot of departed NFL players, uh, some inconsistency on defense. They are 1-2 and heading into this game. They had their matchup with Florida canceled this past week. At this point, a win, I think, would put South Carolina very much ahead of schedule. If I remember correctly, the line from Las Vegas has them as a seven-point underdog, which when you factor in home field advantage, means that most odds makers have these teams as pretty close. I mean, two and three, three and two, 
my understanding and sense of maybe I don't have a great sense of where the fan base is at, but to be two and three after this opening stretch from where you considered where they were going to be at the start of the season, two and three would be acceptable. Three and two, that's gravy. I would definitely say that's probably the case. I mean, people always want more, so maybe two and three would bother some people, but if the prognosticators did their job and, and, and explained how this season looked at the start of it, they were the expectations, I think, were getting tamped down to one degree or another. I mean, I know based on some of the early lines, South Carolina was only projected to be favored in two games at the start of the season, and they've already won two, and if they won three, you know, they'd be way ahead of schedule with four, maybe five wins in their crosshairs. So, I mean, it's weird because who knows how to really take this season, what with pandemics and changed up schedules, and heck, we don't even know that we're going to get to games. We honestly don't even know that. But for the moment, yeah, they they seem in line to at the very least overachieve if they can pull off a win this weekend. I mean, if I'm a South Carolina fan, what's giving me hope this weekend are, are two things in particular, and let's take it one by one. Number one, the LSU defense has been suspect. Uh, Mississippi State— Greg, Greg, you can call it bad. It's been bad. It's been like real bad. <laughs> I mean, Mississippi State, with Mike Leach, brought the air raid in in that first week and just torched them at home. They play Vanderbilt, which, let's throw that one out there because it barely even matters. Uh, And then they play Mizzou, and Mizzou somehow puts 45 points on them. So in the two non-Vandy games they've played, they're giving up over 40 points a game. Even if you include that Vandy game, they're giving up on an average just under 500 yards per game. Is that something where you think South Carolina can take advantage of that, or put up those kinds of impressive numbers? Because it doesn't, I mean, like we said, we've seen flashes, but South Carolina's offense hasn't gone full supernova against a non-Vandy. I haven't, you know, done a, a ton of study on what's wrong with LSU's defense. Um, I don't know if I'll get to that this week. But, I mean, you're talking about a team that's giving up an average of seven yards a play, and they've already played Vandy. Their average play against them is seven freaking yards. And they allowed less than four against Vandy. That's terrible. So I don't know that South Carolina is going to put up 8.3 like Mississippi State did, but they should be able to put up some dang yards and points. I mean, they just should. They have the pieces to. And, you know, even if they only have four playmakers that, you know, are really consistent, yeah, they should be able to do something. And if they come out of this game and, again, are in the mid-fives in yards per play, that's a little concerning because they should be able to because lord knows everyone who isn't vanderbilt already has you mentioned the the dearth of playmakers and something that just occurred to me is lsu is kind of in a situation where their defense is struggling but they have a really good cornerback in Derek stingley i mean we might see him be tracking shy smith a lot which could open up an opportunity for someone like say a xavier leggett who's shown some deep ball potential to to make some big plays, should South Carolina find a way to target him? Should he find a way to show more consistency? It'll be interesting because, obviously, on the outside, LSU does have two pretty talented corners. Now, that hasn't translated into production just yet, but that is something to watch, as they are very much able to do that. That would kind of lead me to believe that it's sort of the interior of their passing defense that's a bit more of an issue, so maybe we see more Nick Muse. Maybe they move some pieces around. I don't know how much uh, Stingley plays in the slot versus outside, but South Carolina's put a big premium on moving Shai Smith around and not letting 
you know, the defense sort of track him. So that'll be kind of an interesting factor just in terms of do they get him into some of those advantageous matchups and away from, you know, future NFL players. And of course, the other reason to have optimism if you're a South Carolina fan going into this game is the fact that LSU's quarterback, Miles Brennan, is officially listed as questionable. Coach Ed Orgeron didn't sound too optimistic in his weekly press conference talking about him dealing with a, quote, significant lower body injury. If you're throwing around words like significant uh, less than a week ahead of a matchup, it would be pretty impressive if he were able to come back and play. I don't know. I mean, you know, coaches talk up this and that. Game weeks are weird. I wouldn't be actually super surprised to see him in, but I would also not be particularly surprised if he's not there and a true freshman gets thrown out there, which is going to be particularly interesting because South Carolina fans, probably like a lot of fan bases, have sort of a backup quarterback uh, phobia. They assume that the backup's in and now things are going to go haywire, and, and oftentimes they do. So... Looking at kind of the set of backup quarterbacks, it's not as if either of them is particularly otherworldly impressive. One of them, a lower-rated young man whose name I'm completely blanking on, is extremely large and is kind of a pro-style guy. Uh, The higher-rated one's a little bit quicker, a little bit more mobile. Talking to the players on Tuesday, they basically said we just played at a scheme, which is interesting because obviously coaches can get very persnickety about injuries and stuff. So, you know, they got three options. South Carolina has already watched all their high school film, which is kind of an interesting quirk on that front. And I think it's going to be a very weird narrative that's going to carry us into that game. So the guys you're referring to, TJ Finley is the first one, the really big, not as highly rated one. Max Johnson is the second one. Finley is like, what, 6'6", 250, I think, and can't move all that well. And then Johnson's a little more mobile and was maybe a four-star. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what this looks like, especially after all the inconsistency they've they've had really all around thus far. It's interesting you mentioned the phobia of backup QBs. I feel like them being true freshmen maybe even kind of amps up that phobia a bit because fans kind of convince themselves, well, like, oh, you know, there's no real film on them from college, so we won't know how to game plan, stuff like that. I mean, college football is weird, and people remember the outliers. They remember the game where the true freshman came in and threw for 300 yards, and everyone remembers it as compared to most of the time that a true freshman gets thrown into the fire in the SEC, where they play terrible. That's usually what happens. I mean, South Carolina has already played one true freshman quarterback this year in Vanderbilt's Ken Seals. Obviously, they did a good job bottling him up, but... I'll venture to say that LSU's weapons are maybe a little more talented than Vandy's. Probably, probably. One thing to also watch is that uh, Terrace Marshall Jr. is LSU's number one playmaker by a mile. He is really, really productive, and there has been some rumblings that he might be out as well. So I don't know if that's the case. That's probably another wait and see. So that'll be one uh, to watch. Allow me to also uh, credit this piece of information to former South Carolina quarterback Michael Skarnakia, who on Sunday mentioned it on uh, another podcast. He also mentioned uh, the possibility that Brennan would be out. So thought that would be an interesting detail. I mean, if he does play, we might be treated to another, another J.C. Horn matchup that would be very interesting to follow. If he can put up two big games in a row against two elite wide receivers, that, that would certainly do a lot for his NFL draft stock. Oh, yeah. But I mean, at this point, I think it's probably pretty dang high already. And, you know, if he wants to do that, 
that might put him in second or first team All-American conversation halfway through the season. I mean, Miles Brennan, the the quarterback that we're we're not sure if he's going to play or not, he's a guy that has definitely suffered from being Joe Burrow's successor. I mean, he was never going to be able to put up the insane numbers that they put up last year. An effective quarterback, though, so far through three games, 11 touchdowns, three interceptions, over 1,100 yards. As we're looking at quarterbacks, just one little note I wanted to add before we finish up is I was kind of surprised to see Colin Hill's numbers. His numbers have been pretty average thus far, pretty pedestrian. I think he only has four passing touchdowns. He He's rushed for a couple more. Just kind of interesting to note that, uh, I mean, he's obviously come in and done perfectly well, but he hasn't obviously wowed as much as maybe you might have thought he would. Yeah, I think some of that's kind of his game. They're not asking him to do as much. They're asking him to, oh, they're not asking him to do as much straight up passing, slinging the ball all over. They're asking him to read defenses, to take what's there, to manage. And I think the two things that are going to be capping whatever statistical success he has are Number one, he doesn't have that many receivers. As we said, his number, I want to say his number three and four guys in targets are both tailbacks. And they're just not getting the ball to that many receivers. They've had a lot of drops. They've had a lot of inconsistency. A lot of the playmakers that they might want to have are young and keep getting, you know, playing limited snaps behind older guys like Josh Van. So I think that's been limiting him. And also they've not really had much ability to run any drop back game because they're tackles up until last week have been kind of bad i mean i think i looked it up and he's getting sacked on something like seven percent of his dropbacks which is a lot it's not a little that isn't good so i think ed orgeron pointed out rather astutely that south carolina is finding all different ways to kind of work around kind of not great pass protection it's been a lot of sprint out passes been a lot of rollouts been a lot of quick game and if you do quick game, you're going to have short passes. You're going to rely on your guys to make yards after the catch. Shai Smith's pretty okay at that. Everyone else is just kind of fine. So I think that he's been a little bit limited. And he's, you know, he's, he's not going to, you know, Trevor Lawrence throw someone impossibly open on a deep ball. He's going to take what's there. He's going to manage. He's going to get the ball to the guys who are the best at, you know, making plays with the ball. So I've not been so surprised this offense overall seems like a, a set of solid pieces where it has those pieces and just kind of trying to work around that framework. All right, we will have to see how it matches up against LSU's defense under the lights at 7 p.m. on ESPN, and we'll have all the coverage you want from that on GoGameCox.com. Ben, enjoy yourself in Baton Rouge. There's going to be so much jambalaya, just nothing but jambalaya and gumbo. All right, thanks for listening, and please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.